This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. Inside the shop, as if by magic, the shopkeeper appeared. Good morning, said the shopkeeper. Which outfit would you like to try today? That one, said Mr. Ben, looking at an outfit that reminded him of the carpet seller he'd seen earlier. Mr. Ben took the clothes into the fitting room, changed quickly, and looked at himself in the mirror. Then, carrying the carpet, he went through the door that always led to an adventure. We're involved in sort of a low-key low war against apathy. I don't know how you're doing on apathy over there, but we got a lot of it, boys and girls. A lot of what we do is designed to annoy people to the point where they might, just for a second, question enough of their environment to do something about it. As long as they don't feel their environment, they don't worry about it. Frank Zappa, leader of the Mothers of Invention. People were just sort of quiet, waiting for something to happen. So I gave them the signal, and they lunged for the microphones and started screaming, kill, kill, kill. Kill, kill, kill, kill, kill, kill, kill, kill, kill, kill, kill, kill. The audience laughed. After it was all over, I walked to the microphone and I said, thank you. And then I motioned to Ray, the lead singer, and he walked to the microphone and said, thank you. And then I went back to the microphone and I said, thank you. And he said, thank you. And we kept doing it until it got very redundant. And we hoped to involve the Marines in this whole redundant unit expected them to go up and say I sent out during intermission for a large doll a girl doll about that tall they brought it back and during one of our hot numbers I gave them instructions to mutilate the doll just like they're trained to do back at the camp and they did it they stomped on it, they mangled it they messed the eyes up they really did a good job on it. They trained those suckers, boy. Kendilerine güvenlerini kaybedince beyinleri tam istediğim hale gelir. Bana olsaydı kimse karşı duramaz. Bu bir zeka savaşıdır.
It's o'clock at five o'clock. It's March. It's Monday. It's Resonance FM. 104.4 FM in London. ResonanceFM.com for replay and the live stream if you're listening to us on the internet. And yet, because of the magic of radio, it is also a cold November night. Yeah, because we're recording this in November, but it's going out in March. And uh, my colleague Ros Caveney, we were before uh, the lady telling us we were at Dalston Junction. We which, were. Which we're not at Dalston Junction. We're actually at the Cinema Museum near Oval. But this show is sort of about Dalston, sort it's of about, about Dalston. It's about Hackney. It's about multiculturalism, which in November we were still defending. In March, who knows? Trump won. Trump, Trump won. We hate multiculturalism. Well, like, well, no, in November Trump won. By March. By March, who knows? <laughs> and remember in the January show that we did that kind of funny introduction about, oh, Donald Trump's become president and uh, we're going to find out that uh, Andy Kaufman hadn't faked his death and then pretended to be Ann Coulter. He'd faked his death and pretended to be Mike Pence. Yes. Well, now he is going to be the vice president. Or is he by Or March? is he? Because we don't know. It's a, It's a great suspense moment. Which... Leads us to melodrama, which leads us inexorably back to the subject of this programme, which is Turkish film. So fond of melodrama as it often is. And it's also a kind of strange psychedelic miasma. And uh, to play us in, we heard a bit of uh, Mr. Frank Zappa, mm-hmm. everyone's favourite Turkish American, and uh, a, a track from his first platter with the Mothers of Invention. You're probably wondering why we're here. Hmm. And so am I. Yes. Why are we here, Ross Caveney? We're we're here to talk to Chem Kaya about his documentary about the underside, I think we can call it the underside, of Turkish cinema culture, which is how the flame of filmmaking keeps cinema alive as an experience in unpromising circumstances. We're talking about an era where cinema had constraints upon it. And we always talk about how constraints are good for art. But actually that's not necessarily true. Because the Turkish cinema of the 80s under authoritarianism was operating on a basis of budgets so tight you could hear the side squeak. Where people had at most 25 reels to work with because of import restrictions, where people had in many cases not had a chance to see the American films that they couldn't import because of import restrictions, and where there were no retakes. All the sound was dubbed because that way you could record it later and you didn't have to block off the streets. We're talking cinema that was much loved, both in Turkey and in the expat community, because it was cinema. And we've talked in many programmes about how cinema is a sacred act of bonding through sitting, sometimes in a cinema, sometimes in exile cultures or expat cultures, sitting together round a video screen. 
or a laptop or a laptop with with with mates with friends with family and Chem you experienced a lot of the films that you're now talking about as a piece of film culture when you were a kid in Germany yes talk about that when I was a kid in Germany uh, in the 80s when VCR came up uh, all the Turkish films of this Yeshilcham film uh, era were transferred to tape and we could rent them for really expensive money for like 10 marks a day uh, we could rent them from Turkish video stores but watching film back then was not like you're watching a film on your own but you watch the film with your family big families um, and you watch films when you when families visit families okay so um, we were like a family of let's say five people visiting a family of seven people and then that's 12 people sitting in front of the television watching the movie that the other family has has rented or has bought and then they put in another movie they put in another movie so you talk you play you have all these conversations you eat and the film is running you know it was like um, the back projection you know, that was always there which then became television for us because in all I mean if, if you, I don't know whether you're familiar with Turkish culture but <laughs> even at when you when you eat dinner the television runs runs and runs and runs and back then it was like that and most of these films uh, for our for the generation for my parent generation it was nostalgia because they had seen these films when they were young in cinemas in Turkey for us it was the first contact to Turkish culture uh, because we just had German television so the only way to get Turkish to get into Turkish culture to hear people also um, speaking proper Turkish you know was through these films bir avantür moda gelir ki o her zaman vardır yetmişli yıllardaki süper kahramanlar fantastik filmler And so a lot of the films were genre films rather than anything else. What sort of genres were they? All sorts? Yeah, all sorts. Because the films that... I mean, I mean, Yeshilcham in that era was in a decline and the German market uh, was somehow saving Yeshilcham. So they really, literally put everything they had into to a videotape. So it's black and white films from the 50s, it's comedies, it's historical films... It's peplums. It's um, peplums. Sword and sandal. Yeah, sword and sandal. Um, it's fantasy cinema. Uh, it's westerns, Turkish westerns that were inspired by uh, American westerns first, and then by Italo westerns. Uh, it's arabesque melodrama, which is a very Turkish genre um, uh, from Turkish arabesque singers. Uh, mm -hmm. Melodramas that were, were made uh, by by by singers. So there's a lot of singing in them. It's very similar to Indian cinema. Um, police flicks like Dirty Harry and all kinds of remakes you can imagine of because uh, Yeshilcham Cinema produced an immense amount of remakes of American movies. Right. Yeah, um, 
Could you gloss the term Jishilcham? Mm-hmm. Have I pronounced that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeshilcham was a street in the Bayola district of Istanbul where uh, most of the film production companies uh, throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s had their offices in. And therefore, the Turkish film industry back then is called Yeshilcham Cinema because the street's name is Yeshilcham. Aha. And it is also the very street where the MX Cinema was uh, located a cinema out of the 20s that was um, the cinema to go in the Yeshilcham era and after the era it was the cinema for festivals and for art house films uh, that got destroyed in 2000 and oh I forgot 13 or 15 so recently that got yeah. d- destroyed recently that's that's one of the subtexts or yeah. one of the subsidiary themes of your film is is that it's a celebration of what was gone true and, and what was gone geographically, literally, the buildings, some of the buildings you show us, were, aren't, there, aren't there now. They were there when you filmed them, but aren't there now. And that's a theme in Istanbul culture, I guess. Yeah, in film culture, but also the films are gone. Most of the films are gone. We had uh, two archive fires in the 50s. They, mm-hmm. uh, the Istanbul municipality forced the filmmakers to put their films into an archive because it was burning material. And we had many wooden houses in Istanbul, so they told them, you know, put your... They forced them to mm-hmm. put their films into this one archive. And then the archive burned down. <laughs> I mean, imagine all the films that were not in post-production or in the cinemas, you know, were gone. And then we have another archive in the University of Mimar Sinan, and there was another fire in the 70s, and so half of that past uh, or heritage was gone is gone so out of the maybe 11,000 movies that were made in this era uh, we now have access to some 3,500 to 4,000 and so in some cases the German videotape copies are the only copy right yeah sometimes or some movies because until 83 84 uh, they were not able to transfer film to tape in Turkey right so they had to send over the negatives from Turkey to Germany to get them transferred to tape. And these films are preserved. And many films that after the military coup um, uh, of 1980 uh, had been banned in Turkey, they went to Germany as well, like the films of, um, of oppositional filmmaker Yilmaz Güney. Um, so they were preserved in Germany. But then something else happened. Yes, we have them on video, but when the video era then uh, stopped and the video companies in Germany um, had these huge piles of film footage that they didn't know where to put they didn't go back to Turkey but to the dump yeah. so uh, a big part of Turkish film heritage th- speaking of 35mm copies uh, was destroyed in Germany and, and or, or put in landfill yeah and that's Awful. It's also kind of the subject, one of the sub, subsidiary subjects of your film. It's about shoring up a film culture from the fragments that we have left. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is what we do. We just have the fragments. We have, uh, yeah, we, we, some things we don't know. Or we, we just have, of some films, we just have photographs. Right. Um, and we have, hist- we have stories. Uh, but it's it's not really scientific, and, and this makes it really hard to do research on Turkish cinema. But, it, but it's all random. Yes, most of it. And so part of what you're doing is is creating a story. 
from the random bits that yeah it's archaeology if yeah. you want but I'm, I'm not the only one I mean there are no, no, other no, researchers no, and, and, and maybe I'm the one who made now the documentary which also has a lot of things that are not that are untold yeah you know. but the other thing you do with the film and this is one of the reason, things that makes it such a very warm film is that it's it's not a film saying I mean it's a film about material much of which is kitsch but it's not mocking it as kitsch it's saying this was how things were it's it's It's very uninterpreted in a sense. Um, we were talking earlier on on the bus about your distrust of being an authoritative voice. Yeah, because there isn't your voiceover in the documentary. The documentary is interviews, but you have the person being interviewed, but you don't hear you interjecting or or throwing questions. To yes, you. but uh, me as an author, I am there because I'm editing it. Yeah, and, yes, and but your your your authorship is in the editing, not in. Yeah, not a in constant the presence. intrusive presence. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't want. I mean, you see, sometimes you see me mm -hmm. in there because I'm showing something or I'm looking for something, but I just didn't want to be part of it, and I didn't want to make my film because we had all these copyright issues with the documentary. I mean, you could easily, you know, juxtapose uh, the filmmaking process today with the filmmaking process back then, and from there you could go into, you know, into these ideas of, of, of, of how uh, a copyright-free culture creates all these crazy things and how we are today not allowed to and all these things. But then I stopped thinking about these things because this was not a film about me. Well, that's, that's interesting because your background in lots of ways is experimental film. True. And that's actually made you, in a sense, a very conscientious and honest documentary maker because of that refusal of of, the, of of the authoritative voice. Yeah. I mean, in a, in a sense, it's a very postmodern, very experimental film, even though it seems, on the surface, to be a very straightforward documentary with talking heads. Yeah. yeah. Talk a bit about the talking heads and all these wonderful old guys moaning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we made some... Uh, at about a hundred interviews, uh, of which... 48 people are in the film. Mm -hmm. uh, some are in the film with just one sentence, which is really sad, but there was no, you know, we just couldn't do more. Um, it would have been a longer film, but all, each interview is at least an hour long. So we're now planning a book project where we uh, put all the interviews together, but in form edited. Right. You say something, you say something, I say something, you know, uh, yes. put on topics. Um, so as if it is, it's a script to a documentary, as if you're reading a script. So, so, so the other ones who are not in the film, they're also very important, uh, important directors, actors, people from also contemporary artists. Not just we were yeah. not just talking to Yeshulcham people, but also post Yeshulcham people, and about how Yeshulcham has influenced generations of today and all these things. Um, so we have this immense archive of footage that we that is really valuable now that also many people have died. Yeah, um, because a lot of the people you interviewed were already very old. Yeah, true. And then there were other people who already had died when I wanted to interview them, and then some um, that were still living, and I was just too stupid to go there. Yeah. <laughs> This happens also sometimes, like in the case of Yilmaz Duru, who is, I think, one of the most underrated directors in Turkish cinema, um, 
Yeah, but that's a different story. So uh, there yeah. I have a big thank you in my credits, but he was. Well, I mean, the point, the point is this: this this is only one of a number of your projects. True. I mean, you you will make other films about Yisrael Cham and uh, and so t- let's talk a bit about the, the specifics of of of, of Turkish rip off. Yeah. Rip off remake cinema, um, because having just dipped my toe in through your documentary and a couple of the things that are online, I go, yeah, that's interesting. Well, you know who first turned me on to um, no. Turkish remakes, Mr. Jeffrey Ryman. Of course, Mr. Mr. Jeffrey, Jeffrey Ryman. Ryman. Who, Jeff, if you're listening, thank you, thank you. And when are you coming on our show, Jeff? Again, when are you coming on our uh, Bride, Bride of Frankenstein show? Yes, well, that, that's something to look forward to. Jeff, of course, being a, a very frequent visitor to Turkey, yes, because uh, of his husband, uh, Mr. Hawkins, being an expert on um, Hittite. Hittite culture, um, and also Jeff being a big fan of the Wizard of Oz. Mm. I was making a show for Resonance about the Wizard of Oz, and Jeff, Jeff puts me to shame by t- turning up with a script. Yes, he actually ri- he did. We did a whole other show because Jeff had just shown up with a show that he'd written. Um, but yeah, he said, Whereas you know, I just wig it. <laughs> w- watch this uh, Turkish Wizard of Oz movie, and it, I mean, it, it, it was all on YouTube, so I watched it, and and I, I, I'm struck by this about it's, many it's, of the it's, films it's, in your it's documentary. Like, it's like that moment when a door opens and you see an entire vista you didn't know was there. <laughs> there's there's yeah. a, there's a sense in which with these movies where people would look at it and go, oh, there's a sort of Borat thing where people might look at it and go oh look funny foreign people who did Star Wars or or a Spider-Man movie but they kind of got it wrong but these movies are not like that these no. movies are and this is something we're going to go on to talk about later I don't think these are bad movies no. they're badly made movies yes. they're not necessarily good movies but they're interesting movies and they're about the cinemaness of cinema <laughs> you know you go I mean, you can say, gosh, that's the worst false moustache you've ever seen. And then you think, oh, but it's worn with pride. But so, but so Jim, what, yeah. what made these directors use found footage? What made them uh, take a whole movie like The Exorcist and just write down, you know, fly to London, write down what happened and go back to Turkey and, and um, film it? Was it money? Was it the political situation at the time? Uh, I, I think it, you have to you have to evaluate this um, individually with each director and each movie. Um, generally speaking, you can say, okay, there was this big inner market um, hungry for domestic films, and uh, Yeshilcham wasn't ready for it because it all of a sudden it popped up. Mm-hmm. Why? Several reasons. There was a tax reduction in '48. There was the electrification of Anatolia. So where electricity came, cinemas popped up, so they needed films, and the distribution networks of the American movies weren't, were not just in the big city, so there was all of a sudden this market. And then there was the demand for these films, and then they had to produce. But the lack of schools, I mean, the first film school in Turkey was established in the mid-70s, and before there was nothing. So making films was, uh, you could just make films through watching other films, okay? This was the only way. Or the first pioneers of Turkish films like Muhsin Ertuğrul or uh, Turgut Demirá, they were trained abroad, okay? Muhsin Ertuğrul was in Germany, he was in Sweden, he was in Russia. Um, Muhsin Ertuğrul was in Hollywood, 
Amosinato, sorry, Turgut uh, Demiran. And these people were the first ones, you know, who, okay, they knew something about about cinema and they made these, these first films, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were also successful. Um, and then they had to continue and continue. And, and because they had to, the, the amount of films, was, was they, they had to produce so many films. At one point, you know, you just uh, get r- run out of ideas and then you look around. Okay, there was this film that was so... Um, uh, so, so that was a hit of bo- box office hit. So, why not making a Turkish version of it? This is the, the the basic situation of it. And then you have to you have this this tradition of Turkifying even the imported films because they're dubbing it in Turkish. Uh, they're putting some Turkish scenes into them, belly dance scenes, mosque scenes. Uh, they behave as if the film. The American film has been shot in Turkey. Okay, why? Because the audience needs to identify. Okay, they do it with Laurel and Hardy films because um, Stan and Ollie they speak Turkish with an American accent in the dubbing. So they really behave as if they are tourists who have come to Turkey and they speak Turkish with this oh Ollie, you know, this this is American accent in while speaking Turkish. And, and these are important things to understand the adaptation culture. Ottoman Empire has opened to the West in the, in the Tanzimat time, which is in the 19th century. And when they were adapting uh, Western literature, they had to adapt it to Turkish audience, to Ottoman audiences. So they had to simplify, they had to change things, they had to make it different. So the adaptation process began back then. So it's, mm. it's, it's a longer, it's a long way t- to cinema to understand this adaptation thing. And when they then started to making the Turkish versions of the films, they had to do many things. For instance, there was no uh, there was no special films. Uh, there was there were no children films, you know, or there were no films that, that targeted target audience. The target audience was a family. And this meant three generations. This meant the children, the parents and the grandparents. Okay? Mm-hmm. So all these three generations had to get something out of the film they were watching. Okay? So it had to be have a it, it, it had to have a simple language so that the child understands it. Okay? Mm-hmm. It had to have a child in it so that the child enjoys it. It had to have a heroine and a hero in it for the parents. It had to have old people in it for the older elderly people. So all these things were formulas. Uh, mostly they got these formulas by watching American films, like American melodramas or American yeah, regular films. Um, I mean, the, most, uh, the, the, the story or one of the plots that was mostly used in, in Turkish films in the 50s and 60s was Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. Why? Because it was this villager who comes into town who has a rich uncle. Mm-hmm. He comes into town. Uh, he gets this, this, this huge uh, heritage. Uh, this, this is huge. Is it heritage? Inheritance, inheritance, inheritance, yeah, yeah. and and then he comes to town, and in in the town there are all these town people, you know, Mm -hmm. who their their ethics and morals is really bad, and they want to you know talk him out of his money, or they want to you know make all these relationships, and he behaves silly. And, and, and in the end, morally, uh, he, he, he wins the situation. Yeah. He's like, and morally, he's, he's above them. He's like, you know. Yeah. And, and, and, and then you say, what's the ethics of this? Or what's the moral of the story? You know, don't lose your uh, humanity and all these values. The country values are also in the modern life. They're really important and so on. And this was used over and over in Turkish comedies, for instance, this story. Comedies with Kemal Sunal, mm-hmm. a Turkish comedian who always was remaking uh, American slapstick films, for instance, yeah. and even the kid. I suppose the point is that because Turkey has this vast rural... You know, for most, for a lot of Westerners, Turkey is Istanbul and, uh, and a few provincial centres, whereas, of course, like America, 
uh, Turkey has this vast rural hinterland that in some ways both regards itself and in many ways is the, the actual heart of the country. And so, in a sense, that heartland is always going to identify with the American heartland rather than with the American urban film. True. And then and you have different different regions, distribution regions, and the biggest of them was Adana in the south, where many also Kurdish people live and, and also all those yeah poor people, hinterland people live. Um, and they appreciated uh, films of a certain type, hmm. let's say. And there's also action movies. And, and most of the films, I mean, imagine it like this. You see the American movie and it's a box office hit. And then the, the distributor calls the producer and says, look, last year, you remember this film, Gone with the Wind, you know, make a Turkish version out of it uh, with uh, actor X, actress Epsilon. Um, and then they do it. You know, so, so they have the blueprint and they make the Turkish version out of it, which I'm in, in, a, in a time where American companies don't bother, you know, uh, copyright issues and stuff. Um, and, and, and Turkey and in Turkey, you have to register your films to get it, get them protected. So when they copy the scripts, when they rip off the music, when they take the, the, the, the film uh, snippets, you know, they take it in fact, out of the public domain because these films are not registered in Turkey. Right. Which is important to understand because it's not ripping off in the very sense, but it is using what was in the public domain back in Turkey. But also, because of, of constraints of money, sure. um, the, all of these things are made in a hurry. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you mentioned earlier, when, when we were talking earlier, about the, the fact that the reason most of them are back dubbed is because it's cheaper that way. It's cheaper to add the soundtrack in the in the studio than to than, than have sound booms on on set. True, um, but presumably that applied to the writing of the scripts. True. Yes, I mean, mm, the thing with the dubbing is really interesting in Turkish cinema because in the beginning, when when Turkish cinema started, they were they were recording sound. Yeah. Then they just had this one sound recording device that uh, broke and had to uh, go to Germany to get repaired. Uh, so then they were thinking, okay, well, what the fuck do we do? It was Faruk Kench, I think, who made then the first film uh, silently, filmed it silently, and then they dubbed it. Okay, And then they re realized, oh, dubbing is really nice because, first of all, we can have speakers, people who dub it from the theater. You know, they mm -hmm. have a much better Turkish than the actors have. Um, and we can just, you know, make uh, we can uh, make the change the film afterwards when the censorship board, you know, wants to have things changed. You know, you can just change it by by by by, the, by changing the dialogue, and you don't have to reshoot it, for instance. Um, and then they realize that also filming silently is really easy uh, with the arguments that you have uh, stressed yeah. out before. There are other um, advantages with. Um, with, with filming silently. You can, as a director, give orders. You can say, okay, no, don't walk this way, don't walk this way, while doing it, okay? Uh, you can, because they have just, just little... And yeah. because you can't afford second takes. Yeah, exactly, because you can't afford second takes, you have to, and also actors have to help to each other. When you forget your line, the other one is helping you out, you know, it's a, it's a kind of improvisational thing. Then there are prompters, because they, they are filming so fast, then they're running from one set to the other that they can't remember their lines. I mean, they can't even, you know, and... It's all they can do to remember which film they're shooting today. <laughs> exactly. So, and then you just have two copies of the script because it's typewriter time and you just have one blueprint. So there are just two script copies and most of them are, are written on the set. 
you know, so so so you're, you're you're writing the script on the set, you know, and give it to the director, and then he's reading it. The prompter is selling it, is is telling the line to the actor. The actor is is telling his first line, and the prompter is telling his second line. So the actor has to has to li be listening and and saying his line, you know. So the voices are on each other, but then the other actor gets into the game. So it's really I have seen some some some some. Um, making off footage of a film it was amazing I never imagined it like this you know or there's a band playing and they apparently can't play you know imagine the voice you know the yeah. sounds they are making while, while they are shooting it or there is this actress that's singing the song because uh, they were dubbed then by singers uh, and she apparently can't sing you know and <laughs> imagine all this going on I think it was yeah, there's going to be sooner or later. Watch somebody will make a wonderful film <laughs> about that area of film. <laughs> Would be nice. It's so. like the the Turkish singing in the rain. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. Could be. And then we have the star system. That's also important to tell. Yes. Okay, because we had many stars in Turkish cinema. It was really like Yeshilcan was really the Hollywood copy, the Turkish copy of Hollywood in terms of system, how it worked, and everything and also in terms of how they misuse and abuse abuse the people you know right. people who work because the acts uh, they are uh, the, the stunts they made themselves okay actors had to pay for their clothes themselves so they brought their own clothes to the set there was no you know giving right. them clothes they had to bring their own superstars i'm talking not yeah. about regular actors superstars they had to watch for their continuity in my film, when I'm when in in this one one one sequence where you see the TV series that I'm filming, the the, the Turkish version of the Golden Girls. Yes. Yes. There, it's it's it's not um it's it's not translated. But in the when the when the scene is almost over, okay, one of the girls, one of the superstar actresses, shouts, uh, "My handbag." <laughs> Hadi bakalım. Arkada hazırlık yapar İsmet'ten girer resim bir açacak ya böyle. Çantama. And then the crew says, "Oh, her handbag, okay? Because she still in 2014 was responsible, okay, for the continuity and that her handbag is there on the table." <laughs> you know, there was no script girl, go continuity yeah. girl, you know, that was that was that was watching it. She herself did it because she's such a professional, okay, yes. that she herself being a superstar in this sitcom, you know, has to call for her handbag because nobody else is thinking about it. So so the, the, all of that attitude persists to the present day. Yeah. You know, yeah. They were dubbing in the Turkish TV series until I think three years ago they were dubbing them. Right. And so you were saying again when we were talking earlier that some of the most fam famous stars uh, nobody has any idea you, no, no, nobody knew what they actually sounded like because they yes. were always dubbed exactly they were dubbed by, by, by people and, and these sounds are in our collective memories the sounds the voices of the dubbing artists okay? yes there was Abdurrahman Palay who was a very important uh, dubbing artist who dubbed Yilmaz Güney and Junaid mm. Arkun the the, uh, in in the seventies, and then I mean I mean when the, the dubbing artist dies, then the voice of the actor changes, right? Because then another dub dubbing artist comes into the game, and and so uh, the dubbing artist's voices are really in our in in in, in, in, in, in Turkish society's really collective memory. And when then in the nineties, for the first time on on, on on on private television, we were listening to the real voices of the Turkish stars, like when Junaid Arkin gave an interview. You know, we were mm. like, what the. 
fuck, you know, this is his real voice, ha ha ha, because, I mean, he used to be our hero, okay, mm -hmm. and we were used to this, you know, this this voice of his, you know, and all of a sudden he was like, me, me, me, me, and talking like Mickey Mouse, and we were like, mm. talk a little about the cultural importance of Gune and Arkham. Okay, Yilmaz Gune was uh, one of the um, most beloved action stars in Turkey in the 60s, 70s, and in the 80s he changed making social realist films. Uh, Junaid Arkun is also one of is the is a phenomenon as an action star in right. Turkish cinema, but Yilmaz Gune is far more the voice of the um, of the oppressed, the voice of the Black Turks, the voice of Anatolia, because Yilmaz Gune is a, a counter um, figure to all these Western-looking artists that Turkish cinema had to offer, Yeshilcan mm -hmm. had to offer back then. When Yilmaz Gune entered Yeshilcham first, there he was rejected by producers saying that, oh, look at you, I mean, you never are going to become an artist. Okay. Um, he was Kurdish, and he had black hair, he was dark, you know, he was skinny, and he had a, you know, he was not like, he was not really good looking in the sense of good looking. You know, he was, he had a really a character face, but a character face like Jack Palance has, feel like, yeah. maybe, okay? So he was not really, uh, I mean, it depends on your taste, you know, yeah. I think he is good looking, but whatever. So he was first rejected. So then he started to make films in Adana, where he came from, in the south right. of Turkey, action movies, you know, like the cheapest action you can imagine. And all of a sudden he became a superstar. So cinemas, you know, literally, they uh, the doors, you know, were broke, were broken, is it? Yeah, where we're broken to, to enter when Yulmaz Gune films were playing. So all of a sudden, Yeshilcham producers got his attention and were like, okay, who is this guy? Okay, and then he became a superstar. And then he, he was always on the side of the good, like Junaid Arkun was too. Mm -hmm. But Yulmaz Gune had this very special thing about him, an aura, okay, that you can't describe by words. And he was really always the guy who was pushed, pushed, pushed, pushed, pushed, pushed, pushed, and then pushed again, okay, and then he exploded. Yeah. And when he exploded, you know, he was like a hurricane. Um, and in his real life, too, he was a gangsterish figure. He uh, had a fable for guns and he was beating up his wife in, in the start, in the beginning. Um, and then he changed. Somehow, through, um, through working with some serious directors like Lutfi Akkad, very mm -hmm. important director, Duygu Sarolo, um, and others, Arthur Filmas, he got, uh, he was, before also, he was writing also uh, short stories, and he was always on the worker's side. He was a leftist, okay? But through this, I think, interaction with these author filmmakers, and through being an actor also in their films, in their important films, uh, like Hudutlerin uh, Kanun, 1966, I think he got somehow more political. Politized, politicized? politicized. Yeah, politicized. And then he started making films that were really different from his action movies. And one benchmark is 1970 Umut, mm -hmm. Umut the Hope, which is an amazing social realist drama, black and white, telling the story of a guy to, uh, of, uh, who is so poor and desperate that he uh, uh, uh, he is looking for a he he's looking for a treasure. <laughs> So 
so so so he started with with with this one film Umut, mm. let's say, and then he made this uh, these these amazing films mm. that that are really important films for Turkish cinema. But he got um, uh, he got into prison mm. many times, and then there was this one incident where he is supposed to or he he killed or may not killed I don't know um, a judge. So then he was really out of it. So he was in prison for a lifetime. Um, and what then happened is that he wrote his scripts in prison so detailed that people outside, his colleagues, could film them. So right. he just directed films out of out of jail. Wow. You know, this is what makes this guy so impressive and so different because he was the only director who was directing his films without directing them. Yomas Güney was one important figure and the other uh, more... And the other figure who is a phenomenon in Turkish cinema is Junet Arkın, the action star. And Junet Arkın himself, he is a less political figure, even though he has also political films. But but sometimes he's on a he's a he's a conservative guy. Sometimes he's a, a, a guy, he's playing somebody out of the syndicate, uh, at the side of the workers. You know, so it's it, it's it's never he he doesn't have a position, okay, because he's an actor, let's say. Yeah. And Junet Arkın, but the the, pheno- the why Junet Arkın became such a phenomenon is. The guy did everything himself. Hmm. He was like doing his stunts himself. Uh, Yilmaz Güney too, but Junet Arkin's stunts are beyond imagination. And in the mid-70s, he began with karate. Um, I have a black belt in Junet Arkin karate. I'm just kidding. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I just took a step back in, there. It yeah. consists out of five moves, okay? So, I mean, he, he invented or reinvented genres, okay, that were, you know, stuck in, in, in, in certain formulas and in certain ways yeah. of filmmaking. And he really reinvented them together with other directors also, with like Natuk Baitan or yeah. Melish Gülgen and so on. Yeah, one of your future projects maybe is, a, is, is about Arkan and his... And his five moves. Exactly, exactly. One of my, my future projects is a found footage film about Junet Arkin and, and how he developed from a, a melodrama actor to this uh, excessive fighting uh, guy who then made, you know, these incredible moves. And, and It's like Bruce Lee's one, one inch punch, isn't it? Uh, no, it's it's more than that because when Bruce Lee is a master, okay, so he just needs one punch. Junet Arkin needs a hundred punches, okay, <laughs> because because he has he's fighting an unjust fight against Hollywood, okay, and what he can't do with technology, okay, he has to do it through emotion, and therefore he's punching and punching and punching blows. and punching. Oh. Yeah, sure, he has to because this is the, the the same strategy. Okay, Hollywood. Okay, you have Superman. Good, we have three Supermen. You know, it's easy as that. <laughs> so there's the American film, really one Superman in the film, and then the Turks make a in a in I mean in two weeks they make a remake of it and say, okay, they have one Superman, we have three. So you know, this is the this is the the strategy, and this is the very same strategy in the. the I was thinking about excess a lot in Turkish films, and also some uh, professors of mine like Nizi Erdogan, they have papers on excess, and and they were telling basically in a nutshell. Um, one of Nezi Erdogan's theses is, is that uh, the reason why Junet Arkin is so excessive in his films or the Turkish film is more excessive than the Hollywood mo- original, let's say I mean, there is no original, but let's say it's the original is that he is in an unjust fight against American movies because they are occupying Turkish cinemas, okay, and they have to, you know, they are in this, in the challenge you know, to get his audience to his film and th- th- it, that the audience doesn't go to the American movie so he has to give them something that the audience doesn't find in the American movie. Technologically, he can't do it. Mm. Why? He can't. I mean, he just doesn't have the, the, the, the money and the technique and all these things. So the only thing he has is emotion. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's the reason why he's like you know he goes nuts and with the excess and he's beating and he's you know and specifically in a sense Turkish emotion. True. Yeah. Sure. Sure. It's Which is po- post post imperial but proud. Yes. Yes. Yeah. True. If you, if you go into the historical films and the old nationalistic films and yeah, true. True. So how does that relate to? the Turkish attitude in the 60s and 70s to American music because we played at the start of the show with um, some psychedelic Turkish music yeah. by the gentleman who's Zars we Barış Manço yeah. yeah and so one of his, his uh, I can't remember the name of his his, uh, his funk influence band but I know he was in a kind of psychedelic prog rock yeah. outfit called Mongolar is that the right Mollar. Mollar. but he was Mollar was another band and I think they had just it was a short time that he was part of Mollar and they had some things together but we had a psychedelic rock uh, tra- we still have a psychedelic rock tradition we have a beat music and garish st- uh, tradition in Turkey um, and if you and, and I mean the, the question is why okay and why all these American why the American influence okay so the thing is just also in a nutshell um, after Second World War America became the leading culture cultural uh, figure for Turkey whereas before the war uh, it was Europe it was France, basically. We have so many French words in Turkish. Like, imagine it's like really a colonized country. We have mm-hmm. more than five thousand French words that are really Turkish words that nobody thinks of anymore because they are so Turkified. Like, my film in Turkey is called Motor. Motor in French cinema is used for action. Right. The the motor of the camera. Yeah. Okay. So the the the when when they called action in Yeshilcham, they said motor. Right. You know, so even the terminology was came from from the West because the technology came from there. So after Second World War, what happened? Uh, because we have also a border to Soviet Union, uh, the Marshall Plan. We benefited Turkey benefited from the Marshall Plan. It became a member of the NATO, the the Democratic Party government in the fifties. You know, they were totally pro-America, um, and. They were so, so all of a sudden all these American cars were on the streets and they made big streets like uh, roads for for cars. So it was on the way to become Little America and all the American culture was imported music, mm-hmm. and this music was then inspired other people, uh, uh, Turkish bands, uh, to make Turkish versions of it, to mm. mix it, bend on it. American bases, presumably. Yeah, exactly. American bases uh, in Turkey, in um, where is it? In in Adana, Mersin, in in, in the south. Um, and so it was. So it was. It was part of the. It, it, it was a Western ally. It was part of the Western bloc, mm-hmm. and therefore American culture was the big thing. And therefore we had these American films. It was like in the Philippines. It was like you know in all these countries where the Americans uh, after World War Two uh, put their culture to. And yeah, basically that's the reason why uh, in music, uh, in film, in the arts, also we are very influenced. By the Americans, but also by the French. We have, we have Turkish chansons, for instance. You know, we have a big, um, also in the 60s, 70s, um, French chansons that are uh, sang, song, sang, sung, sung, that are sung. Uh, <laughs> Such a language. <laughs> yeah, that are sung with Turkish lyrics, for instance. This we have a lot. Ajda Pekkan was one of these, uh, well, uh, the the female singers who made a lot of French. Songs we have Turkish tangos because right from the twenties thirties on tango was a big thing in Turkey. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, we have famous tango uh, musicians, you know, all these things. So these are they, they, this this inter interaction with with Western culture traces really back to the late Ottoman yeah. time. So when the soundtrack of um, Assault on Precinct Thirteen is being lifted off off 
literally taken off the vinyl and dropped into the soundtrack of one of these Turkish films or the Godfather music. Yes, exactly. I was going to say the Godfather music in different arrangements. Yeah. There's a brass band somewhere in the background and it's playing the Godfather theme again. İşte Türk filmlerinin kralı geldi. Müzik babası. Buyur, Godfather. Evet oğlum. Her, her filmde bulursun bunu. Dramatik sahnelerde. Çocuk hapisten çıkarken çalar. Onu yapar, onu yapar. <gülüyor> ne bileyim ben. Her filmde vardır. İşte bu da bu da vardır her filmde. Sicilyalılar çetesi. Alem Delon, Lino Ventura, Jean Gabin. Harikada bir filmdir ayrıca yani. The Dragon. Kavga sahnelerinde, kavga sahnelerinde en çok kullandığımız filmdi Bruce Lee, Glenn Saxon, John Saxon pardon. But so presumably that's not inconsistent with what was happening in Turkish culture is that an American sound was as much to do with the sound you'd hear on the radio in Turkey, on television in, in Turkey. Sure, it's a hybrid culture. I mean, it's not like when you can have, you can listen to an American f- song and then listen to a Turkish folk song. Why not? This is mm. this happens in Germany too. I, I, I was raised up in Germany when the Germanys were divided, and what we had was the American soldiers were there. Where mm. I lived in Bavaria, okay, we had at the inner German um, um, border, we had some. I don't know. In the city I was living in, we had twenty thousand American soldiers before the Iraq wars. Okay, so they were there. We were occupied, and. If you look into Germany and into into German pop culture, you see the influence of the Americans. It's so apparently we have so many tr- uh, German Elvises. Where Peter Kraus is a superstar in Germany, and he's uh, I mean he's he's copying Elvis basically. Mm-hmm. We have Amer- German hip hop was developed in the south of Germany. Why? Because we were listening to American Forces Network all the time. That's so you know this is important to to understand what let's say imperialism mm. yeah. okay or cultural imperialism okay what an effect it has on the people okay who are consuming it you know it shapes them which does not mean that they reject the other or their right. own okay they melt it to something and then it becomes the most normal thing to do and now from the outside when you watch into to Germany or and you watch German westerns mm. okay or you watch uh, Turkish westerns okay then you say oh it doesn't fit together or you, or but the Dracula in Istanbul, for instance. Yeah. Well, it, it's that William Gibson remark that the street finds its uses for things, which he was applying to technology, but it's also true of foreign cultures. This is the last thing I really wanted to um, talk to you about, because, Chem, I know you've got to go upstairs, and we're, we're seeing your documentary here at the Cinema Museum in Oval. Yes. And we're surrounded by... Uh, we were talking earlier on about uh, preserving... Cinema. Well, this is one of the great institutions in London, mm. if not in Britain, of physically preserving all these lovely old signs and these lovely old seats that we're sitting in now. Creek. Um, <laughs> do you think 
having spent, and this has taken, what, seven years of your life to, to get the film to completion. So you've watched thousands of these Turkish movies. Yes. Are they bad? I mean, should our appreciation of them be that they're so bad they're good? Or sh- I mean, should we be laughing at them or laughing with them? Uh, it depends or, on the film. Or just liking them. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it, dep- it really depends on the director, I, I suppose. Because you, there are some directors who really are visionary. Çetin İnanç, Yılmaz Duru, uh, Aykut Düz, Necad o- uh, um, not Necad Okçugil, but Cevat Okçugil. Okay? These are directors who really did different. Tunç Başaran, the, the guy who made the... Um, the Wizard of Oz movie, okay, who then became also an author director later. He at the one point at one moment he stopped, and then he became a, a director of commercial movies. And then when he gained enough money, he made serious films, for instance. So I think it really depends on uh, whose film you're watching. You can't say the entire Yeshil Cham oeuvre, okay, because they are too different. Mm-hmm. You, you have to really go into the films, into the genres, and most of the melodramas. Uh, I don't like them really, but then there are some melodramas made by certain directors and they have something to them. That's one of the things I loved in your film is the scene with the aunts. Yeah. Well, they're talking about television soap operas, but it's the absolute delight in watching. Yeah. And that's the that's the point, surely, about, about a popular cinema. It's remembering audience reception, remembering that people love these films. True. And then imagine you are in Adana in a 3,000 people open air cinema. Okay? Children playing around, people talking to the screen because they are reacting to what is happening there. Okay? When the bad guys beat the good guy, you know, they're booing out. Okay? They're throwing things at the screen. One guy told me that they were even shooting at the screen. Okay? <laughs> I mean, I don't want to exoticize this. Okay? Mm, no. But. The, the, the, the film watching process is is different. It's more a community watching a film. Uh, it's less that it's not like today in an 80 people cinema and everybody has to be silent, you know. It's not a film watching culture like that. And then you watch three films one after the other. Yeah. But what I'm saying, what I also want to say is that even in the sophisticated urban West, one of the great delights of cinema is watching something and suddenly getting the innocent eye back. I remember the experience of seeing Star Wars for the first time, and literally it was the first London screening, and that moment when this big spaceship zooms over your head, and then an even bigger spaceship follows it, and that's the innocent eye of cinema, and that's part of the delight of cinema. Thank you so much for talking about this. Thank you. Ian, you have a book published, forthcoming? Uh, yeah, just published this week. Yeah. Which, please explain what it's called and, and why you wrote it and why we should read it. But yeah, uh, it's called uh, The Hollywood Meme. Its subtitle it has the kind of slightly academic, boring title of Transnational Adaptations in World Cinema. Um, which, so it's basically a kind of survey of all the kind of international reworkings um, of... Uh, 
Turkish reworking of Star Trek and Batman in the Philippines and the Bollywood version of Memento and yeah, just kind of charting all the various ways in which American cinema has been reworked in mainly in Turkey, the Philippines and India but I also kind of mention other examples in, in Brazil, in Mexico in Japan, all over So we're watching Chem's documentary here at the Cinema Museum uh, in the auditorium how do you think uh, the Turkish films that Chem's um, documented in this film, how do they rate in terms of different film markets copying American content? Mm. So I think one of the things that's most interesting with what's going on in the Turkish industry is that they are doing such a variety. There's so many remakes and there's so many different ways in which they're using American cinema. So there's some uh, kind of parodies of American cinema there's some kind of straight like shot for shot like the, the Exorcist is almost a kind of shot for shot remake then there's Man Who Saves the World which is kind of using clips from American cinema and music and various other elements whereas in other industries such as India um, they're remaking American cinema but actually they tend to be just remaking the plots and so there are a few examples where they're like Superman will appear in a Hindi film or there'll be the reworking of Nightmare on Elm Street. Like There are some in which, okay, here's the iconography and you can say, okay, here's this and here's it borrowed in India. But actually, most of the time, it's really just the plot that's being remade in India. Um, there's no attempt to kind of like capitalise on audience recognition of, like, here's Spider-Man in, in India. Here is... Star Trek in India. It's really not done uh, in the same way as the Turkish industry at all. Like it really just uh, just focuses on here's a plot, and then let's take that and add a few elements. So let's add songs. Let's add. Let's heighten the emotional content. Uh, one of the things they talk about in India is the need for parallel tracks. So they always feel that Indian films uh, need to have more stuff going on than a Hollywood film. Like there's a quote from a director who does lots of remakes who was saying that the problem with the film Speed, the American film Speed, is that it's just got, yeah, you're on the bus, uh, it needs to keep going over a certain speed until, uh, or it'll explode, and then that's the whole film. And in India, that would be just the beginning of the film. And then you also need the backstory, and you need the musical numbers, and you need to add all these, these kind of parallel threads that then all come together in some way at the end. Um, so oftentimes that's what they're taking they're taking that core concept like so Gajini, the Memento remake it's like they're taking the core concept of a guy who um, has lost his short term memory and tattoos himself and has the Polaroids and like all the kind of recognisable elements of Memento but then you take that and add in a backstory with loads of kind of uh, love songs and big kind of spectacular musical numbers um, and then you add in kind of action scenes, you make the plot chronological. So yeah, you've got the basic kind of thread of the film borrowed from America, but you've integrated all of these extra elements. Um, and so I think that's quite distinct from what the Turkish industry was doing, which tended to be borrowing the kind of iconography, borrowing here's the costume of Batman, here's the costume of characters from Star Trek, um, and then interacting with that in, in the variety of ways yeah. so like with a film like um, um, Malagon Superman 
which you were alluding to a moment ago. That's not, I mean, I don't know, I'm not from Malangon, but um, having been in India a lot, um, my sense is that someone who would watch that in a video parlour wouldn't think it was trying to be a Superman film. Mm. Um, and the, one of the crucial things in that movie is the song in which, and I can now drop the clip in. Superman. Superman. Where you hear the lady singing that Malagon Superman fights for justice for everyone, Hindu, Christian and Muslim, which in a city where you know, it's, it had a big uh, weaving industry. Most people were working on looms. It tended to be lower-class Muslim people. But because of Modi's economic reforms, most of that industry is going to Gujarat. So there's a lot of economic deprivation. And that's feeding into existing tensions between many different communities. I mean, and, not, and not just uh, Hindu and Muslim, but you have got tensions with Christians, uh, Sikhs in Malagon. It's, you know, the, the conflict dynamics in that city are very complex. So to have a Superman character who's standing up for everyone is making a very, very powerful point and it's not lost on that Indian audience. Yeah, no, I think that's 100% correct. And I think, yeah, it's not uh, presented as here is a kind of copy of the film and we're kind of passing it off as an American film. Like, sort of the... Famously, the Italian industry has a long tradition of taking elements from American cinema, but then often passing it off as an American film. So kind of anglicising the names and uh, kind of just attempting to kind of remove some of the kind of identifiably Italian elements from the film in order to be able to sell it and export it around the world. Uh, Whereas it's almost the kind of opposite process that's going on in Malagon, where yeah, you're still borrowing from American cinema, but to make a film that really resonates with a very local audience, a very particular audience, um, and there's kind of no attempt to kind of say, like, here is a, or, um, here's a version of Superman that people would recognise as an American film. It really, it's emphasising its localness all the way through it. So earlier on, um, Chen was with us and we wandered to Umish and Sons, 35 Lower Clapton Road, which is one of the great, like the theatre, like the cinema museum, it's one of the great preservation spots of projected cinema, the old technology, the the warm, I won't say fuzzy because it's all steel and chrome, but, you know, the the warm technology of of, of our childhoods before... Digital, as as it said, film is made from silver, DVDs are made from rust. And we also had the benefit of the, the warmth of the owner, Umit himself, who's yes. the most delightful, charming gentleman who was very generous with his time and granted us this interview. Yeah.
So, uh, just a moment ago, you could hear some street noise, as you can hear in the background now. But that was a different street. That was quite near the uh, the turning off to Hackney Central. And uh, some lovely, possibly Romani, possibly Anatolian-influenced street music mm. next to the closed Serik Turkic, Turkish restaurant. Yes. But we're now on... on accordion. And very nice it was too. Yes, I heard it earlier. So, and that just kind of gives us a reminder of the fact that London... Post Brexit, post Trump, but still with Sadiq Khan as mayor, is, dare we say it, a cultural melting pot? Interface city. So we're on Mayor Street and we're going to walk up this little street. And we're going to have an experience which you can still have in London, which is to walk through a magic doorway. Yes, into a shop that you've walked past. 20 times without properly noticing it. So, I mean, how long have you lived in... This is your manor, isn't it, Ross? This is, it's, it's, the, it's the outer edge of my manor. Um, but, yeah, I've, been, I've lived in Hackney for... God. I first lived in Hackney in 79? 78? No. 78? I moved here in a different millennium. I've lived here for 40 years. And I've walked past this shop. I mean, I used to go to the doctor just over the road, so I've walked past this shop so many times and not noticed it. I just saw vaguely, oh, there's a strange little shop that has projection, projection reels hanging from the frontage. We're now standing in front of Umit and Son on the Lower Clapton Road, which is 35 if you wish to visit here and check it out yourself. And the window display is a startling, multicultural, multi-thematic... Jane, Jane Russell in the Outlaw, uh, a, a Black Uhuru LP cover. Al- um, Alfred Hitchcock. Alfred Hitchcock. Framing a, reality with his hands. A bunch of, tri- bunch of Chinese movies like Iron Monkey. And uh, a, a Charlie Chaplin, something to do with Charlie Chaplin. A lot of... 1960s and 1970s cinema magazines, a bunch of VHS tapes, a mock-up of an Oscar, some Bruce, and some photos of Bruce Lee, and the slogan of the shop: "Cine films are made from silver, DVD is made from rust." Now, Chem, I mean, is, is this the first time you've been to London this weekend? Of, it, it's after ten years, the first time that I'm, I'm in London. So you, ha- you haven't been back since. I mean. Places like Soho are changing, are becoming more gentrified, more um, anodyne, some people might say, kind of losing their their distinctive character. But, um, I mean, we talked about Umit's shop the first time I met you, but now we're here. Yes. And we're about to go and talk to the man. But what um, do you think of it? And what, Also, I mean, as a, as a filmmaker, as a documentarian, how does it make you feel to look at all these different formats that he's got in his window? It makes me very jealous to be honest <laughs> because I'm a collector myself and what I see here is really something I, every collector you know envies, envies other collectors <laughs> so I see here so many things I would like to have at my place and I, that I really like to preserve and what I just fear is because this is what happens to many of these things of private collections is when those people don't have the money anymore you know to keep them uh, then these collections they just um, yeah fade away okay they and we had the same thing in Berlin there was this one VHS store called Maxim it's in my film remake remix ripoff also 
um, that after really um, staying there for so long, you know, just he, they, he survived DVD and he survived uh, satellite television and all these things. But in the end, in the 2000s, he had to stop. He just um, closed the shop and his collection is now everywhere, spread everywhere. And I didn't have the money to buy it because it was then too much for me also. And this is what I'm... The, the constant fear of that this culture is going to die or is getting lost. This is what I feel. Yeah. I love it, but I'm really in a... Which is, in a way, what your movie is about. It's about pushing on one, into, into one format the memory of, of what was. Because actually, in a sense... Your selection of, is is both. It's it's that line, that last line, almost of the of Elliot's wasteland. These fragments I've shored up against my ruin. True, and there's yeah. there's a, a kind of poetic um, overlap, superimposition with that line, with what's effectively in its slogan. Selling films silver are made from rust. silver, DVDs made from rust. That film, physical film, analog film, is a precious thing. It's made yeah. from a precious metal. Yeah. It's yeah, but which the... also destroyed many of the films. Because in Turkish film history, we don't have many archives. And the ones, and, and, and, the, and the reason why film positive got destroyed, one of the reasons was to extract the silver out of it, out of them. So when, when film companies, uh, before, the, before they could resell the films or distribute them as VHS or DVDs or whatever, okay, after the film had been shown the second time in the cinemas, it was worthless. Mm. Okay? So what they did is to, they burnt the films you know, to extract these, the silver worth 20 pounds maybe. And so the, the, an entire heritage got lost yeah. you know, because film is made of silver. To kill werewolves with. <laughs> So now we're going to walk off the street through the magic cold street through the magic doorway into Umit and Sons shop at 35 Lower Clapton Road, London. So as if as if by magic, a shopkeeper appeared. We're here with Umit. <laughs> now listen, um, I don't know how you want to do this. There's a lot of noise coming in here. I mean, oh, we love all that. I can. Is it, it adds to it, does it? Yeah, it's all that. Um, you see, it's all I atmosphere, can, knocking yeah, over videotapes. I mean, I can shut the door for ten minutes if you like. If you want to kill the outside noise, I don't know. Nah, we like all the. It's it's audio verite. We like oh, all that. Okay, okay. So, um, we're making a show mostly about um, Chem's documentary today. But what we've done is we've put films sure. with tube stops. We've so, for example, we, we've done this like huge map of the London Underground where we've put like an American werewolf in London okay, with yes. uh, Tottenham Court Road because, of course, it's filmed down there. Of course, and yeah. it's not only not only have we called it the Scala Film Map, oh, but Scala. we've called it the Scala Film Map with the blessing yeah. of no less a luminary than Mr. Stephen Woolley and Jane and Helen at BFI. So I actually did an interview with them a couple of months ago, oh, lovely. and I showed them the map, and they went. Some some of the films he, he went no you shouldn't have put that there, right? Okay. But it, generally speaking, it's kind of approved. So yeah. the next thing we've got to do is put the overground on. So this show is the first one we're doing, putting an overground station with a film. Uh-huh. And I just thought, because Chem's here, because your shop's here, uh, and also because Dalston Junction is near to the Arcola, which sure, of course we sure. set up by yeah, a, a just... Turkish gentleman as well. Yeah, not far from here. Um, 
so we're sort of we're we're putting Chem's film on the map to honour Turkish culture in London and Chem's film, but also your wonderful shop. But I suppose the first thing that listeners who don't know that much about Turkey and Turkish culture would wonder is, I mean, you're both two gentlemen from Turkish cultures who sure. speak Turkish, but actually from the last day or two that um, we've been coming in here, what you've got in common is as much to do with uh, with having collections of old videotapes and old films. I love videotapes. But is that a Turkish thing, would you say? Well, I think they still have video collections in Turkey, yeah. whereas in most other countries on the map, they've all been there. And I'm saying, why been it? You know, I get, I get nice people come along every day of the week and they leave me their video collections because they know I like VHS. I don't mind digital, I don't mind DVD and Blu-ray, but for sure VHS is more stable, I think. I mean, I, I, it's been around 50-odd years. I mean, I still record on the Betamax. Most people don't rem- remember Betamax nowadays. Um, I have a Betamax recorder too. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think my friend here will agree, if it snaps, bit of tape, you can fix it, unlike DVD. I'm not saying DVD is crap, you know, but um, yeah, yeah, I still collect VHS. I'm always looking for rare VHSs. And you got to also understand, um, a lot of films that was released on VHS, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, initially it was Betamax, um, they've never been released on your DVD or Blu-ray, whatever. They're all sitting around gathering dust, which is a bit of a shame. So if you're a collector, or if you're an archivist, which I am in a way, um, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I need to see a doctor. Um, <laughs> a lot of these items you can only find on tape. You know, you might have to look a little bit, but you can look for them on Blu-ray. You're not going to find it. And so, I mean, and also, also films that were lost because many films uh, after the military coup in Turkey, 1980, the films of Yulmaz Güney were, were banned, totally banned in, sure, in Turkey, sure. and many films went went to Germany to get copied on VHS and you find them on the German market and there are yeah. still producers watching for their films I, w- one, I found one film which is um, by Yilmaz Güney I just found the black and white version but it's a, it's a, it's a film in colour on VHS so the producer is really looking for it because he just you know he lost his film yeah. and this is really important it is, well, it is archiving too yeah black and white is better than nothing at the end of the day yeah, exactly. you know and, and although I love black and white um, I was saddened we were talking about this a little while ago. Yeah. I was really saddened because I actually found a 16mm print of Gunei and I was bidding on it on eBay and it went to about 400 450 and at the last few minutes I lost it. I know it's gone to Canada somewhere, but, you know, you know, I was really saddened because 16mm prints of Gunei doesn't turn up a lot. And what's the, for people who don't know about Turkish cinema, what's the significance of Gunei? Of Yulmaz Gunei. Yeah. Yulmaz Gunei, in the beginning, was the, um, the, the most acknowledged um, action film star in Turkey. Oh, in pioneering the, man. Yeah. Pioneering man. For sure. And he was a counter figure to all these Western-looking artists because he was really, he was Kurdish. That's important. And so, and he came from Adana, from the south of Turkey. And all the other uh, Yeshil Cham um, superstars were really looking like European looking, okay? Especially the male actors like Junaid Arkun, like Göksel Arsoy. And he was really a, a, a counter figure. He, he was the black Turk amongst the white Turks, okay? And that's why he became a legend somehow, because he was, you know, he was um, 
he was pushed, pushed, pushed, pushed, and then he exploded and was was was um, uh, fighting for the right thing, for the good. And this is what what, what uh, audiences in the south and in the southeast appreciated a lot. So um, he was a rebel, and in real life he was too. And he was a leftist. He was an intellectual. He wrote things. He was many times in prison. Then he had he, he shot, or he might have shot. Um, uh, how's that go? a judge in real life so he went to prison wow. and then he became in the 70s he became uh, he, he evolved from an action film star to a serious filmmaker with social issues and he, in 1970 there is a there is really a benchmark with Umut the hope which where yeah, for the first yeah. time he was playing you know a poor guy and not an action guy and this film stresses so many questions about Turkey back then and then when he was in prison he had today, to today I think even today. Even today. Exactly. Very relevant even today, 30, 35 years on, I don't know what it is exactly. Even today it's very relevant. And it's, it's a bit sad that in some circles, good or bad, there's still a bit stigma about that film. And, you know, I don't want to use the word scared about it. That's a strong word to use. But it's a really well-made film. Well-made film. Really good. Yeah. And, and then, that makes me just finish this, because, and what then happened, when he was in prison, okay, he listened he, so, to so many stories, you know, around him, from, from all the people who were in prison with him, uh, so that he made uh, uh, scripts, that he wrote uh, scripts, that then other directors, colleagues of his, filmed outside. So Yilmaz Gune was the director who directed his films out of prison. Okay, and this is incredible about him, and they are really well-made films. And the the one film he's he's most known for is Yol the Road. Yeah, okay? I've seen Yol. Yeah, you've seen Yol. So when Yol was was um, filmed, it was not filmed by Yilmaz Güney. It was filmed by Sherif Gören. Okay, but it was a script by Yilmaz Güney. Sherif Gören filmed it while Yilmaz Güney was in prison. And then Yilmaz Güne, after the military coup, he felt that there is no hope at all for him getting out of prison, so he fled to France. In France, they edited the film. The raw material was uh, put out of the, the country. In France, they edited the material, and then they won the, the, the Palme d'Or at, at the Cannes Film Festival in 1982. Okay? And then he made one film in France, and he died of cancer that he, uh, because he didn't get any treatment in, while he was in prison. So this guy was just, I don't know, he was like... Um, more than a star, more than a director, he was really a, a legend for the people, a Volkshead, we say in in Germany, and this is important. He has a very different uh, place in Turkish cinema. It's, it's, it, he's, there are these all these good directors, all these bad directors, maybe all these you know different directors, but then there is Yilmaz Güney. He stays elsewhere. And Umi, you've got a picture of him up in your shop. I've got quite a few pictures yeah. of Güney. Um, I'm not really. Um, I don't really want to get into the politics of the, whatever. Um, um, half the time he did try to speak the truth. Some parts of Turkey didn't like it for sure, and some parts loved him. I'm. I'm not actually from Turkey, mm. although I've got ties to Turkey. Mm. You know, I've got a lot of wonderful friends out there. I'm actually from Cyprus, but um, I'm a big fan of his because he had a certain style and. Well, actually, we talked about this. He was the very one of the very first men, if not the first, to shoot direct sound in Turkey. You know, because you know it all it all gets moist afterwards. Even today, most of it gets moist afterwards. But he was one of the one of the very first men in Turkey to shoot direct sound. So he did pioneer a lot of things. And when you look at some of his, especially his later works, 
you know, the lighting, the framing, the continuity, the photography, you know, there is no such thing which they always ask me, people who come here, what is a bad film? There isn't such a thing as a bad film. Bad continuity, bad editing, bad lighting, you know, and for sure, you know, I mean, I'm not a director, although I do a lot of exhibitions, I'm a well-qualified projectionist, you know, 8mm, 16mm, 35mm, IMAX, whatever. Um, but if you look at the Gunei films, especially the um, later part of his life, I mean, you could easily say he was Hollywood and beyond standard, you know. True. I'm not sticking up for Hollywood or having a go at it, but he was, and, and, and Cannes and Palme d'Or and all these other places, they recognize that. Uh, you know, he, he won quite a few awards. In fact, I think some of the awards he won, they were a bit late coming, you know. Um, but yeah, yeah, as I say, I don't get too much into his political side of it. His story initially is a bit similar to mine, in a sense. Um, he was involved with 16mm prints, and I was involved in 16mm running our school cinema. I got trained for it, and I got my certificate. You know, and we used to get the films from the ranked library, okay? And I know Yilmaz is one of his very first jobs. Not a lot of people know this, I don't think. He used to deliver 16mm prints to small cinemas in Turkey on the back of a bicycle, okay? So he had passion from the very early days, you know, and then he moved on to other things, producing, script writing, directing, you know, and also he starred in a lot of films. And acting, yeah. And acting, for sure. And I was blessed to read one or two of his books. You know, uh, special guy, special guy. You know, a bit of a loss, absolute bit of a loss, I think. Because once in a while on the planet, you do get important people and wonderful people. You know, people like Muhammad Ali, people like Bob Marley, people like Bruce Lee. And then you get people like Yilmaz Gune. Well, Umit, yeah. thank you so much for your time. You've been so generous welcome, in hosting sir. us. You're welcome. Well, it's, it really is. I mean, just for me, it's a great pleasure to bring you two gentlemen together. And I'm, I'm I really appreciate that you I, did. Can I mention something, if it's Always. not rude? A very good friend of mine, Mr. John Sullivan, uh, you probably know the name, who sadly passed away recently. He was a very good friend of mine, and he was also my teacher in the last half of his life and I spoke about this a few nights ago um, what he used to say is um, what is relevant and what is important not just what we look at but how we look at it I leave it there I think thank you thank you so Ros now that you've watched Chem's documentary um, and Chem's gone upstairs to do his introduction to his film so we can talk about him behind his back I think it's a bit cheeky talking about Chen being our guest on this show because he's he's really kind of a third presenter, isn't he? Yes, really. I mean, yeah, I mean he's he's more than a guest because he is a proper auteur, and I really look forward to seeing his future projects. Oh, me too. And he's and the other thing he's talked about a bit, and I think we've got some of it in the interview with um, Umit is uh, Bruce Lee. Yes, I mean no, because I really want to see the the Bruce Exploitation movie. I want to see the the the, the Arkan movie. So, since Chem's not in the room, but we're here with you, dear listener, Ros, talk to me a bit about 
the evolution of this idea of uh, films so bad they're good. And the starting point for it is Susan Sontag's Notes on Camp and that essay. Yeah, I've always had a problem with that. I mean, it, that essay is very formative for my own thinking. I mean, um, I mean, I think the trouble with Susan Sontag, the trouble with Susan Sontag, of whom I'm a huge admirer, is this is someone who taught herself great culture like a route march through it. You know, as we go, it you know, she spent her teens going, today I will listen to a Beethoven string quartet and I will learn why it's good. Tomorrow I will read three poems by Rilke in the original German and translate them. And then I will understand them. It's this goal-oriented self-acculturation, which meant she wasn't necessarily terribly good at at the enjoyment part of jouissance. Had you really not read or or reckoned with until about two and a half weeks ago? I had never heard of Camille Paglia. That is correct. I then made this statement, and a few people did me the kindness of sending me. Uh, Xeroxes of some interviews that she has given and some things written about her with remarks about me circled in red. So I am now familiar to that extent uh, with Camille Paglia in the last two or three weeks uh, that I see she's made some remarks about me. But I don't consider that being familiar with somebody. And until two or three weeks ago, I'd never heard of her. I was intrigued because She's interested in a lot of the things that you write about in this book, including Italian Catholic paganism and feminism and... Well, I wouldn't know that, Mm. would I? You'd be surprised at all the things I don't know, because I I know about a lot of other things, and I read all the time. And I don't think I'm wasting my time in what I do read, so one can't read everything. Does pop culture interest you? I don't think in those terms. I don't use those categories. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm a working writer who has a lot of interests. And there's no point in asking me if I have a lot of other interests. I could could make you a list, a very, very long list of all the things I'm interested in. I'm interested in neurology. I'm interested in art history. I'm interested, etc., etc., etc. It would be pretentious to go on. Therefore, why... Ask me, I mean, you have some other agenda, and it's not mine. Um, You know, I have a lot to think about, and a lot to read, and a lot to study, and a lot to entertain myself with. Uh, And it isn't based on the entertainment culture. Although I'm sure there are some things I like and enjoy, which some people would call pop culture, but I don't use that language. I think I have a sort of more complicated view. I don't need to use that one. Had she heard of you? Of course she had. People have been mentioning me to her for years. Not only that, but she can't continue to claim she's a bibliomaniac when she'd been you know, living in New York, and my book had been a bestseller in New York for like years, and my, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a massive denial out there, and yes. maybe a studied denial. What's that all about? Well, I think that um, it's as in um, The Turning Point with Anne Bancroft. I mean, this is, she literally is being passed okay, by a younger rival, and, it, and, and she's not handling it, I'm afraid, very <laughs> gracefully. Um, but um, you know, Susan Sontag was an enormous figure to us in 
the 60s. And um, it's, it's really unfortunate what she did to herself. Like Germaine Greer, there was a general collapse uh, in the 70s. I, you know, it's too bad because she was once a prophet um, of uh, popular culture. And then, and then Sontag became very snobbish uh, and, uh, and began chasing after all these male European writers and so on. And she lost the, the cultural centrality that she had. I am the Sontag of the 90s, there's no doubt. And um, I'm like one of a series that goes back through Mary McCarthy to, you know, to, to Dorothy uh, Parker and so on. And I think that uh, Sontag belongs to the generation before World War II. She doesn't watch TV. She's not into rock. And she has been uh, passed. In a way, when she actually tries to cope with popular culture and come to terms with it in a way that's in many ways superior to the Frankfurt School, she does it through the so bad it's good thing and through consideration of her take on camp. And that was quite daring of her because, you know, she was uh, primarily lesbian, bisexual in a period where being openly that was um, next thing to saying I'm I'm mad. You know? mm. um, I mean, do not do not bitch about Susan Sontag's preparedness to be out and proud, especially because she was bi. Mm. I mean, and, and she she she could have chosen not to be uh, to, to to be quite as out as she was. Notes on camp helped cultivate the so bad it's good thing, but the trouble with that is that it's a way, often a way of patronising popular culture, genre culture. Um, no, plenty of popular culture and genre culture is good because it's good, not because it's bad. And often the so bad it's good thing can be a cop out of that because it doesn't understand that things are good in their own terms. In every work, regard the author's ends, said Alexander Pope, since none can compass more than he intends, or she. Um, so she's both, I won't say the, the parent one has to kill if one's going to write about popular culture, but she's the big sister with whom, whom one has to quarrel. And yet she also created a space in which it was possible to have that quarrel. So that's kind of where I stand. The so bad it's good thing. And this was uh, stuff like the Golden Turkey Awards and, and the 50 Worst Films of All Time. These were coffee table books that followed on from Danny Peary's 100 cult films, which is basically a, that book was, here's a load of films that you should see. If you wanted to see the movies that were in Danny Peary's book, you probably had to go to The Electric Notting Hill. Mm. And some of them, some of them really are both bad and fun. And some of them are things with their own weird integrity, like um, Plan 9. Mm. I mean, there is no stretch of the imagination whereby Plan 9 from outer space is a good film, but yet it captures something. It's like the um, the Todd Browning Dracula is not a good film, but in a sense, Bela Lugosi's performance in that in that film is—it's that word—iconic. Listen to them, children of the night. What music they make. Pull the string. Dance to that. Which one is created for? Because captures genuine menace. A genuine exoticism. 
And same reason that a lot of Christopher... I mean, there are Christopher Lee films which are simply really, really good, like uh, The Wicker Man. But Christopher Lee was a great actor, even in some of the weakest of the Hammer horror films. Now, to say that they're so bad, they're good. No, they're good, but their good is limited. And you should enjoy them on their own terms. And saying so bad it's good, eh, that's a, that, that, that, that, in a way, blocks discussion. I mean, I'm, I'm quite sceptical about the usefulness of, of that. And yet there are movies that I don't think are good, that I'm really glad I've seen once, like the Howard Keel musical about Hannibal's conquest of Italy with uh, Esther Williams as a swimming vestal virgin. That's me. You go, I cannot believe I have seen that movie. Maybe I dreamt it. There, there are Maybe I Dreamt It movies. And maybe they're a different category. Well, there's, there's an idea which is sort of allied to this and I think is also linked to Chem's documentary, uh, which is called uh, Remake, Remix, Rip-Off, which is, what is a rip-off? Um, if you copy something, if you copy the ideas from another film or you, you ape it... Hmm. Does it mean that the derivative work isn't is worse than? So here here are some clips I put together. This is a sort of interesting thesis. I'm not sure I go along with it. That's in a documentary by a very interesting um, American documentary maker. He's also made some very good radio documentaries. You can find online. Uh, he's called Ray Green. I particularly commend to you his NPR documentary where he interview he did very very long interviews with um, Vampira. Ooh, in her declining years and edited it together into a very good NPR documentary. Now this is a documentary he made about exploitation cinema and specifically roughies and his argument is is that if you look at an example of the one of the classics is that the right word? One of the archetypal roughie films Agony of Love, this is possibly an inspiration for Boonwell's Belle de Jour? Yes indeed. Now that you've bought me what do you want me to do? Could we uh Perhaps Novak's finest effort along these lines was The Agony of Love, a seamy psychodrama about an affluent housewife played by Pat Barrington who rebels against the gilded boredom of her marriage by leading a double life as a prostitute. The squalid premise was redeemed by talented writer-director William Rotzler's unwavering sympathy for the stifling predicament of a middle-class wife. I don't know what a genius is, but I think Bill Rotzler might have been a genius, and in a lot of fields. He was a sculptor. He was a cartoonist. He wrote a lot of science fiction. He directed 25 motion pictures, and I think all but two of the pictures that he directed, he also wrote. Uh, he had an active mind. Agony was as close to a stylistic and thematic tour de force as a feature shot in five days is ever likely to come. Students of the genre have noted the almost scene-by-scene -scene resemblance of Agony of Love to surrealist director Louis Bunuel's Belle du Jour, which Rotzler's scenario matches right down to its eerie dream sequences. <laughs> Exploitation was never above ripping off the masters, but if plagiarism occurred in this case, it was on Bunuel's part. Rotzler and Novak's Agony was released in 1966, a full year before Bunuel's more renowned work. Chem also mentioned there is, of course, a Turkish <laughs> remake of Belle de Jour. I'm not sure that an American exploitation 
film made by William Rossler. Have you heard of this guy? William Rossler? Yeah, I've, I've got several. I've got. He, What's he his wrote, deal? He wrote. He wrote. Uh, he collaborated with Holland Ellison on, on a couple of short stories. Gee he wrote at least two novels, I think, rather more. But I, I remember reading Patron of the Arts, which was quite well thought of uh, back in the day. And a, hu- and a huge dystopian novel called To the Land of the Electric Angel, which is that great title. Wow. Which I could probably pull off my shelves, so I know perfectly well. And he was also a famous fanzine cartoonist. Wow. So I know about William Rockstar. And does so in science fiction circles, does he have a reputation for making No, he's soft, totally forgotten. Soft, but did he have a reputation for making softcore porn with uh, women in bullet brass being slapped about in motels? I am sure in some circles it was known that he did this, but they'd be fanish circles in which I did not move at the time. What is the likelihood, in your estimation, that a film by, um, at the time, a somewhat celebrated fanzine cartoonist making exploitation films for the grindhouse circuit would have come to the attention of the master Louis Binwell? Who can say? And would, Who would, can say? Would Binwell have had time to rob whole bits from it and then film them again in France but with Catherine Deneuve and we'll never know it's an interesting thing I'm not sure I buy it but it's an intriguing thesis I mean certainly having seen some of those clips I do see the argument but on the other hand convergent evolution and it's to do with the male gaze and sexism and it may just be that you know as Ambrose Beer said you know when it's steam engine time there are steam engines because they're both films about toxic masculinity, and maybe that's what toxic masculinity. Yeah, I mean, looks toxic like. masculinity, whether it's in France or in Southern California, has a is... limited vocabulary of tropes. But on the other hand, who can say? So I want to relate this to um, thinking about certainly the most famous bad director, Ed Wood. Is is Ed Wood a bad filmmaker, or is he a good filmmaker making interesting films with no money? And related to that, what is his work derivative of? Well, exactly. It's not especially derivative of anything. He has his own vision. He has limited funds. He also has remarkably limited technique. But to say that... It's a vision. I mean, one of the... um, Part of the thing, trouble about Edward, is that uh, as a result of Look Back in Angora... Which is the Edward, one of the three, count them three, Edward documentaries. And as a result of the um, Tim Burton, Johnny Depp film, film, we now mythologise Edward in a way that would have amazed him. Yeah, I mean, mean, now we can play some clips of John Landis talking in another documentary, uh, Hollywood R-rated, where, as John Landis is about to tell us, he ran into Eddie Wood. They come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead, zombies guided by a master plan for complete domination of the Earth. Plan 9 from outer space. When I met Ed Wood, um, Bory Ackerman brought him to my uh, first screening of my film, Schlock, and he said, uh, uh, John Landis, do you know uh, Edward Wood? And I went, Ed Wood? He went, yes, hello. And I said, you made Plan 9 from Outer Space? You've heard of it? Yeah. I was like, I was so excited, I couldn't believe it. The 
the thing about Ed Wood's films is his sincerity, you know? I mean, his sincerity. In Hollywood, they, they say that sincerity is the most important thing. And once you can fake that, then you have it made. <laughs> but, uh, but Ed Wood really did have a tremendous passion for the work. He was terrible, you know, but he had passion. And that comes through when you see some of his movies. It is safe to state that the grandchildren of some of the people in this theater will not be born on Earth. You can say you like it, you don't like it, it's good, it's bad. But to dismiss someone, you know, I mean, the classic artist, the classic artist Van Gogh, you know, he, he is mad, he cuts his ear off, you know, he's pathetic, he dies in pain, and now he's considered the great, the great Van Gogh. And it's, who's to say in time? So there, you know, Edward meets John Landis when John Landis is starting out on his career. He's just made schlock. And Edward is stunned that anyone recognises his, his work. Well, now everyone's heard of Edward. Yeah. I mean, he's not a bad director in the sense of people don't deride him. People don't look down on his work. They laugh when the films are on. Are they laughing at them or with them or is it somewhere in between? Somewhere in between or both. So, I mean, in relation to this, this is a serious question for you, Roz, speaking not only as a critic and a connoisseur of culture, but also as a leading trans person, leading trans activist. Is Glenn or Glenda uh, perhaps worthy of reappraisal as not necessarily good, but an interesting trans film? It's an intra Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's... Like all of those things, it was part of, though I didn't actually come across it till much later, I very much related to all the bits of tranny porn. And I mean, I don't, I wouldn't normally use the T word, but in mm. the context. That's what or, it is, yeah. Yeah, the female impersonation magazines, this whole vocabulary of uh, exploitation biography paperbacks that were around when I was a teenager, that, you know, I'd shoplift from from music now, now the truth is coming out um, and then put back sure sure you did <laughs> yeah, no I really did sure I'd steal them read them put them back <laughs> um, because uh, and then buy science fiction magazines and actually take those away um, I had strange morals when I was a teenager um, but but one of the reasons I love Lauren Bukas's time time traveling serial killer novel, uh, The Shining Girls, is that when I, I I was talking to Lauren, I said, "You really did your research on that," and she said, "What do you mean?" And I said, "Well, I rem you you know the you your trans character who works in the circus as a hermaphrodite when they're young and so on." I read that book. <laughs> I know where you stole that from. <laughs> And Lauren said, gosh. <laughs> so a film like Glenn or Glenda. And so Glenn or Glenda fits very much into that milieu. And it's, and, and you know, the transvestite is someone just like you or me, except the periodically puts on a bad blonde wig and an angora sweater. It's part of the, it's, there, there, there's that rather sweet, sweet-natured normalisation Give this man satin undies, a dress, a sweater, and a skirt, or even the lounging outfit he has on, and he's the happiest individual in the world. He can work better, 
think better, he can play better, and he can be more of a credit to his community and his government because he is happy. These things are his comfort. But why the wig and makeup? He dares to enter the street dressed in the clothes he so much desires to wear, but only if he really appears female. The long hair, the makeup, the clothing, the actual contours of a girl. It's also a reaction to Christian Jorgensen's story. It's, it is a celebratory movie, but it's a celebratory movie from the 50s, and so it's going to be peculiar. I mean, as a, as a, as a cis person, as a straight, ostensibly straight person, I, and now I have you as a friend, and I have more trans friends. And having rewatched Glenel Glenda, and having rewatched the documentaries about Edward, I find myself feeling uncomfortable when people are sort of slightly making fun of the fact that Edward was wearing uh, bra and panties when, as a U.S. Marine, a bona fide war hero, he rushed up the beach at Iwo Jima and oh. was smacked in the face by a Japanese soldier and lost his front teeth. Yeah, I mean that's not. You should make fun of the guy for that. No. He was brave. He was brave, and he was out, and he was proud, and I love him for that. He's just, you know, he's part of history, and you know, nothing extenuate nor set down or in malice is my attitude to Edward as to so many people. But the fact that he's not just uh, Glenn or Glenda, but a lot of his films, particularly his later films, which were just softcore porn are from the senior side of sexuality. Does that mean that they don't then suffer from the uh, sort of overpreening high-mindedness of a film which, frankly, I don't think people are going to um, look back on with anything like the same fondness and affection they do for Glen or Glenda or Plan 9, which is Myra Breckenridge. The book that couldn't be written is now the motion picture that couldn't be made. Myra Breckenridge. Uh, what's your name? I'm Myra Breckenridge. You have a lot to learn. All of you men have a lot to learn. And I've taken it upon myself to teach you. I'm the widow of your late nephew, Myron, and I've come to collect a half a million dollars. Myron's mother said, with her dime breath, let's go to your Uncle Buck and you tell that son of a bitch that I've got a copy of the will and I want my share to go to you. You realize once you cut it off, it won't go back. Great bunch of boys here. Of course, you get the occasional weirdo, but, uh, like anywhere, but the uh, greatest bunch of kids in Hollywood. Yes, now that's horrible. It's just rubbish. Yeah, that's like a really bad film. But then you see, I have very conflicted feelings about uh, about Vidal's novel. Hmm. Um, because Vidal was the sort of gay man who feels he's better than almost every other gay per queer person. He really did. That I, really, really comes across in every interview with Gore Vidal. Yeah, I mean... And in a way it was necessary to his... Because... Vidal is someone who suffered, who, you know, I mean, he, he was the coming young man when he wrote his, war, his first novel about war. And then he wrote The City and the Pillar, and he was dead to the literary world for decades. You know, there were major newspapers who said, we will never review this man again because he has written an homosexual novel. So, I mean, 
in a way, it was necessary for Vidal to be that completely obnoxious person whenever he talked about sexuality, because he'd suffered for it. I mean, there is the period where he couldn't publish, where he hardly published books because he couldn't publish books, or rather, couldn't publish books under his own name, which is the period when he wrote uh, those the three Edgar Box detective stories, which I rather like. There's a, I agree with you. I think there's a lack of kindness about Myra Breckenridge, both the book and the film, and so to take and and indeed Myra and Myron Breckenridge, the the even worse sequel, in book. And to, so to take this back to to the the point uh, that I started out with, which is Susan Sontag's notes on Camp. It's very interesting to me that when, I mean, it's a very it's a very interesting essay, and you know mm. I think people should re- should read it and reflect on it. One of the points she makes amongst many points in this essay, they're numbered points on how how mm. camp works. One of the points towards the end she makes, and I'm paraphrasing, but she she basically says a camp appreciation of something is looking on something's naivety with kindness. Mm. So she's although the bad films are good camp thing ended up becoming this uh, sort of haughty, looking down mm. the nose at things. Oh, that's so funny, they're trying to make a movie and they're in Turkey. Here's the, here's the thing. I don't think, that at a certain point when she wrote that, she may have changed later, I don't think that Susan Sontag would have looked at think something like, at great camp art, like, say, 42nd Street, and enjoyed it on its own terms. She She might have said, oh, that's... That's almost like these silly little people are trying to make great art. No, it's because they're making great art, sweetie. So the idea that you can decode an artwork or you can decode culture and appreciate the hidden um, homosexual argot mm. within it, which is kind of the way that, get, you know, prior to the decriminalisation of homosexuality, the way in which particularly gay men and particularly gay men in the arts mm. sent each other signals yeah. about their availability or what they, what they have for lunch or whatever. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's the th- one of the ways I know I was a very queer child was that even when I was 11 and 12 and first reading science fiction, I was spotting homosexual subtext in science fiction novels <laughs> without even quite knowing what I was spotting. But I was going, I don't mean, when I was about 12, I was reading Cyril Cornbluth uh, and reading Arthur C. Clarke and going, Hel- and Edgar Pangborn and going, hello. I- but so when you, when you extend that um, you know, that habit of close reading and and trying to decode things, what happens with the idea? For, this is my take on it anyway. When you t- you take that idea that something can be so bad it's good because you can appreciate oh ha ha they were trying to do something and they didn't get it quite right and it's you know that's mm. funny is you're decoding the artwork not because it contains some kind of hidden homosexual code you're de- you're decoding it because you're appreciating it as outsider art. Hmm. And Sontag is saying that you should appreciate the naivety of somebody creating art in that way out of kindness. Of course, what actually happens, and I think this is the danger with um, people having a less thoughtful interpretation of these Turkish films than Chem has, which is you look at a Turkish remake of The Wizard of Oz, or you look at a Turkish film with Captain America teaming up with El Santo to fight evil Turkish Spider-Man, and... I don't think this is what Jonathan Ross was doing when he was bigging up no. Turkish Spider-Man because he's a much more thoughtful and sensitive man than that. But there's a way of looking at, you know, a kind of incredibly strange film's take on it where you just go, ha ha, they did Spider-Man wrong. 
Yeah. They made him evil. Ha, ha, ha. And it's, it's the lack of a sense of context, and it's a lack, lack of a sense of cultural context, and, and, and that sense of proud Turkish peasants sitting in a huge open-air cinema with, with, with, with, with the family pets and the children playing, playing in, the stri- in the street and people going off to, to, to, to get fizzy drinks in the middle of the film. And you know, it's, it's how these things are consumed. And we're not entitled to patronise that. No. Well, it's been absolute. I've, we, we always enjoy making these shows and we love all our guests, but it has just been the most brilliant fun hanging out with Chen yeah, the last really couple has. of days. We had a lovely time at Umit's shop and I'm just so glad that we could spend this time with Chem and Umit and I'm so glad Ros that I could spend this time with you making and me with you too. well that's very kind of you to say so um, so that was us that was music for films for another month and I wonder what it's going to be when you've listened to this in March <laughs> because right now we're in the period of recounts we're in the, in the, in the period of the president-elect doing angry tweets who knows what who knows what the future holds They'll have, they'll have got through all the prospective um, Republican or Libertarian candidates whose eyes scream the word apocalypse, and they'll be down to Ron Paul. Pat Buchanan will have taken a look at it and gone, no, I don't fancy that. I mean, Kellyanne Conway will, you know, will, will, have, will have threatened threatened apocalypse on camera because people are laughing at her president. <laughs> President Palin, it happened here. Don't. Ah, gosh, the, can you imagine the inaugural of Trump? Yeah, <laughs> it's like tr- Trump announcing that Elton John will play my inauguration and Elton John saying no. <laughs> and that, that's something I've been wondering about. Apart from Kanye West, who is going to be crazy enough to play Trump's inaugural... Ted Nugent. Nugent. Ted freaking Nugent. Cat scratch fever. At the inauguration. Well, I mean, you know, can you imagine he takes the oath and the entire, the significant parts of the audience just stand up and silently turn their backs. That may not happen. It probably won't happen because the, the Americans are weirdly deferential. But it could yet happen. <laughs> After he's sworn in, President, uh, ex-President Obama says, "Actually, it's really, it's absolutely true about UFOs. He doesn't believe me." <laughs> I mean, that, that would be the way that Obama would completely screw with Trump. Is he like the last thing he'll do is go, "Yep, Roswell, that all happened." <laughs> what? What happened? Ask this guy. <laughs> I'm out of here. My yeah, drop. I, I, I, told, I told him who shot JFK. <laughs> Just saying. I, I've forgotten it now. Because when you tell them, you forget. It's part of how the presidency works. Well, dear listener, you no doubt you're either listening to this... Uh, or not! Or not. But if you are listening to it, you know, you, the world is either a... A smoking... <laughs> you're a smoke and, you're, and you're, you know, listening to this whilst fighting off radioactive zombies with your sawn-off 12-gauge and fighting your neighbours for the last tin of, of beans. And the last access to Resonance <laughs> FM. <laughs> but with any luck, uh, you know, the world will survive the first months of the Trump presidency and we will be back next month 
with another program, which we have not decided which one it is yet. We, we have no idea. But, gentle listener, gentle listener, be assured that if we're spared, it will be there. This has been a BP Keepers production for Resonance FM at resonancefm.com. Resonance FM in London at 104.4 FM. Our podcast is More Music for Films and you can find it on thebeekeepers.com or your podcasting application of choice. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.